Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. This is your sneak peek for the last week of the April sitting. We got cases coming up on dark money, cursing cheerleaders, and a whole bunch of environmental stuff. We'll also recap some news, including Thursday's opinions and Justice Barrett writing a book. Kimberly, let's start with that book. We learned from Politico this week that the newest justice landed a nice $2 million advance from mm-hmm. Penguin Random House's conservative imprint Sentinel. It's not totally clear what this book will be about, but somewhat unsurprisingly, the news has caused a bit of a fuss, right? Well, that's right. And I think um, there are two parts to this, or maybe even more than two parts. But I think one is the kind of jaw-dropping advance amount that she received. So $2 million, um, is quite a bit. And I think, you know, some people have pointed out that Sotomayor and Thomas also received, you know, million-dollar advances, um, still less. But, you know, I, I, I think, you know, one of the things that distinguish those two from the book that we're seeing from Amy Coney Barrett is that, you know, those books were not about judging, which we hear that uh, Barrett's book is supposed to be about. Instead, theirs were about, you know, they're very compelling personal life stories. Um, and so we see, like in Sotomayor's, hers ended right before, you know, she took the bench. So um, that, I think, is one criticism, is the amount and kind of um, how that looks to, you know, your casual Supreme Court observer. You know, listeners who want to read up a little bit more on that, uh, our colleague over at Bloomberg News, Greg Store, has a story about, you know, kind of the perception um, that the public might have of this. And then the other, I think, is the subject matter. Um, the other problem that people are having with this book is the subject matter. Politico said it's supposed to be about you know, how judges aren't supposed to bring their personal views into judging. And um, I think a number of people have pointed out that Annie Comini Barrett has been a justice for less than six months um, and wasn't on the Seventh Circuit all that long. Uh, so we saw a pretty sharp Slate article from Dahlia Lithwick that suggested maybe instead of writing this book, she she show, not tell. Yeah, so I saw that story, and I would just say in, in Barrett's defense, I mean, how illuminating do we actually think that a book by a sitting justice would be at any point in their career? Well, I mean, I think we can look at some of right Justice Stevens' books when he left the bench were definitely pretty illuminating, right? So she's got to wait like 60 years. I mean, or maybe even like 10 years? I don't know. Um, maybe a year. I don't know. Um, right or wrongly, this, these are the criticisms that we're seeing. Uh, I think another thing that we could note um, is that now I think it's five of the justices have books out by um, Random House or its affiliates. Mm-hmm. So imagine a case comes up with Random House, not totally unheard of. Um, you know, what's going to happen there? There wouldn't be a quorum. Although I saw uh, Fix the Court noted that recent justices who wrote books haven't recused when their publishers' cases have come up. So Now, to be fair, I think, you know, the ethics question with related to Supreme Court recusals is a lot different um, than any other courts that we're going to look at. So, you know, you look at the appellate courts or the district courts, and if someone recuses, you can just slot another judge in there. But in the Supreme Court, there's no mechanism for doing that. So, you know, you run the risk of, you know, an evenly split court or in the case of, you know, a case involving Random House, a court that can't even hear the case. I don't know how much of a big deal that really is. 
um, considering that, you know, appellate courts are often the last word on a lot of issues, but just something for us all to complain about. All right. So let's talk about opinions. Um, Jordan, we got one in one of the longer outstanding cases that the Supreme Court still had, Jones versus Mississippi. Tell us about this one. This one made some of the uh, liberal justices a little, a little upset. Oh, yeah, a lot upset. So Brett Jones against Mississippi. This case split the court along 6-3 party lines. It was the latest in this series of cases about juvenile sentencing. Remember, when Justice Kennedy was on the court, he was a pivotal vote siding with defendants. Now, Kavanaugh replaced Kennedy, and that's changed the trajectory of these Eighth Amendment cruel and unusual punishment cases. And the question was whether judges need to find a defendant is quote-unquote permanently incorrigible before locking them up for life without parole. The majority said no, judges don't need to make that finding. And the question was how to interpret these precedents, Miller and Montgomery from when Kennedy was on the court. And the majority said those precedents didn't require that finding. The dissent written by Sotomayor for the three Democratic appointees said they do require that. And the majority is distorting precedent and gutting precedent was the word that Sotomayor used and basically rewriting those old cases in order to narrow them here. So there was a lot of heated language there in the dissent. And Kavanaugh, in his majority opinion, was saying... We just disagree about how to interpret those prior cases. And Justice Thomas had an interesting concurring opinion where he almost agreed with Sotomayor that the majority was being dishonest, but more so that he was concerned that the majority wasn't going far enough and that should have just straight up overruled one of those precedents, Montgomery, as opposed to dealing with it weirdly. So he just joined in the result. Right. Um You know, this one is really interesting to me in that the timing, you know, really, really mattered, right? Because this was an issue that the Supreme Court had already agreed to take up in um, the case of the D.C. sniper, Mm -hmm. right? But then Virginia changed its laws and ended up getting, you know, a new case kind of pushed until, you know, we swapped out Amy Coney Barrett and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, But I wonder if it really would have made a difference, right? Then maybe the count would have been 5-4 instead of 6-3. Exactly. I think the decision was basically rendered at the point where Kavanaugh replaced Kennedy, but it might have changed the margin. But like you say, you never know how a different mix on the court will affect things. And then you also brought up a point that this case has some implications for death penalty cases, right? Um, Kind of another heated area that we've seen uh, a lot of back and forth between the justices on. Yeah, it's all cut from the same cloth, the Eighth Amendment, cruel and unusual punishment cases. Those have always been sort of a classic partisan divide because there's a lot of wiggle room there. Basically sets up the whole sort of originalist, non-originalist distinction, even though Justice like Alito will also side with the government because that's what he'll do in criminal cases. But it's, you know, it just sort of raises the classic law and order issue. We'll see some wiggle room in other types of criminal cases. But when it comes to the Eighth Amendment, we can be pretty sure about how those are going to come down. Like Gorsuch isn't going to be switching sides on these Eighth Amendment cases like he might in some Fourth Amendment, Sixth Amendment. Exactly. And it was similar for Scalia, too. They rule similarly on those when it comes to the Eighth Amendment this whole living constitution thing where the standard is evolving standards of decency, the Republican appointees, they don't like that. And so this is a case that really shows that divide. 
And then um, another case that we got on Thursday was AMG Capital Management versus FTC, another case with high drama. Um, Not really. This was a unanimous (laughs) ruling, which said that the Federal Trade Commission can't recruit money damages under a provision that lets the agency go to federal courts to stop alleged fraud. Now, this is important because the agency has used this provision over the past decade to recoup billions of dollars in restitution and disgorgement, and they can no longer do that. So we saw the acting FTC chairwoman, Rebecca Kelly Slaughter, say that the ruling, quote, deprived the FTC of the strongest tool we have to help consumers when they need it most. And then she urged Congress to step in and make it clear that the agency does have this power. So um, I've said it before, but you know you're always in good standing when you're banking on Congress to help you out. Yeah, I was going to say, we won't hold our (laughs) breath for that. Uh, And then the final case that we got was Carr versus Saul. Um, This was another unanimous ruling, sort of. This is one where, you know, I love when they do this, where like one justice, you know, agrees with part one, two B, two, but not two B, four, whatever. I don't know. Um, So all nine justices agreed that the Social Security claimants don't forfeit their ability to challenge the structure of the agency when they make that argument for the first time in federal courts. Um, But the justices differed a little bit in how they got there. I think the important thing is, is that under the majority opinion, the Social Security Administration is treated a bit differently than your typical agency. And so we saw the justices emphasize that the norm is that litigants must first press these claims um, before an agency or they risk losing the ability to do so in federal courts. Um, I guess one more point is that this is part of the long-running balancing act that the Supreme Court is trying to do uh, to balance executive branch accountability with agency independence. And, you know, these often play out as they did here in challenges under the Constitution's Appointments Clause. So I think we'll be seeing more of these in the upcoming terms. So let's finally get into the sneak peek here. On Monday, first up, Kimberly, we got Americans for Prosperity, the subject of our most recent deep dive. Remind us what's happening in this case where Democrats are calling for Barrett's recusal, speaking of Barrett and recusal. Well, that's true. We do see some Democrats in Congress calling for Barrett to recuse. Um, This was an issue that was brought up during her confirmation hearing, and she didn't say whether or not she would recuse, but she hasn't recused in um, decisions regarding this case. So I suspect that we're not going to get a surprise. Hey, I'm recusing now. Um, But even though we did see some Democrats in Congress calling for her to recuse, um, there are loads of ideologically diverse amici all coming in on the side of the petitioner here. Um, And as you mentioned, we talked about this in our Deep Dive episode. So just briefly here, um, this is a challenge to a California law that requires nonprofits to disclose to the state their biggest donors. And they're going to be pulling from the court's precedent, including one involving the NAACP, in which the court said that disclosing the civil rights group's supporters would subject him to harassment and even violence. And the question here will be whether the conservative groups, including the Koch-backed Americans for Prosperity Foundation, uh, would be subject to the same kinds of harassment, such that it violates the First Amendment. 
an interesting thing about this case is that it is one of those cases where the Biden administration flipped from the previous administration's stance. And earlier this week, we saw the chief justice kind of get into a weird little moment with the Biden administration where they were, he was trying to press them to acknowledge that they had switched uh, positions in a statutory interpretation case. And the Biden administration really pushed back on that. Um, so we'll see if, you know, the chief justice tries to get at this again. This is one of those places where I wonder if the Supreme Court justices have kind of a weak spot or a blind spot, because, you know, we saw particularly the chief and Alito give the Obama administration a really hard time about flipping positions, but not say really anything about the Trump administration. I think only Justice Sotomayor mentioned, um, you know, the flip flops there. Um, but then when the Biden administration coming in, seeing the chief justice push hard again, I don't know if that's such a great look for, you know, their claims of nonpartisan. And that's just the first case of the week. So, Oh, sorry. Yeah, I'm long-winded today. No, it's, that's what the people want. I mean, you're not long-winded. <laughs> so the second case is Guam against United States. This is one of the environmental cases this week. It's a fight over who has to pay for a $160 million cleanup near a former Navy dump in Guam where the military had dumped waste for decades. The federal government says a prior settlement absolves it from responsibility and that Guam waited too long to ask for help. How the court rules here could affect other big Superfund cases and how states go about deciding whether to cooperate and settle with regulators. That's Monday. And then on Tuesday, we got another environmental case here, Holly Frontier Cheyenne Refining against Renewable Fuels Association. This is a clash between the oil industry and agriculture. It involves the Renewable Fuel Standard Program under the Clean Air Act. The program requires renewable fuels to be blended into transportation fuel, but Congress included a temporary exemption for small refineries facing disproportionate economic hardship. And the question here is whether refineries can qualify for exemptions, even if they haven't received them continually. Challenging an appeals court ruling that said they can't, the refineries are arguing they're at risk of closing. The Biden administration wants the justices to uphold that appeals court ruling. What's the other case we have on Tuesday? Right. So the second case on Tuesday is United States versus Palomar Santiago. Uh, this is another immigration case, which takes up a good chunk of the court's docket. This is another one of those immigration cases, though, where we see agreement across Democratic and Republican administrations. So the issue here involves a defense to unlawful reentry. Uh, Non-citizens can defend against that charge by showing that their original removal wasn't valid, uh, but they must also show that they exhausted that argument before the agency. So this is a little like the Social Security case that we talked about at the top that the Supreme Court decided this week. And the question is um, what non-citizens must show in order to prove exhaustion in front of the agency. And specifically, is it enough to show that you were removed because of a criminal charge that currently wouldn't be a removable offense? So here in 1998, Mr. Palomar Santiago was removed for a DUI. A few years later, the court said DUI wasn't an aggravated felony that could support removal. And the question is whether the federal government can still use that charge to um, charge him with a more serious reentry after a m removal rather than just lawful entry. And then Wednesday. What the f is happening on Wednesday? <laughs>
Wednesday is another free speech case, Mahoney Area School District versus uh, BL. This involves student speech, in particular when schools can punish students um, for speech that they make off campus. So here, a cheerleader frustrated with not making the varsity squad made some pretty harsh comments on social media about the team, uh, and she was kicked off the team for a year. Um, this case is going to look pretty heavily at Tinker, that First Amendment case we all learned about in law school, which said that schools couldn't punish students for wearing black armbands protesting the Vietnam War. Now, since then, the court has really tried to determine what circumstances schools can punish student speech, um, things like when it's disruptive or when, as in the bong hits for Jesus case, uh, it can be interpreted to urge illicit drug use. Um, here, the extent to which schools can regulate off-campus speech is the central issue, particularly when it involves school business, like a cheerleading squad. So the Supreme Court, the current Supreme Court, as we know, is pretty strong on free speech issues, um, but maybe not so much for students. Um, so the fact that the Supreme Court took the case here, which went in the students' favor in the lower courts, could suggest that they're going to pull back on student speech. But uh, this one also has a pretty deep circuit split. So it could just be that they feel like they need to resolve it. But I'm really looking forward to this one. They also first need to figure out what Snapchat is. So that could be a threshold issue. I'll, I'll never forget. There was a case a while back about Facebook. And I just remember Justice Alito saying something like, well, and, and you know, he, he pressed that button to thumbs up the, the entry. And I was like, <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> so I can't wait to see how they do with Snapchat. Finally, closing out the week, we got yet another environmental case from big environmental guy this week. Penn East Pipeline against New Jersey. This one involves the Natural Gas Act. Under the act, private companies can use the government's eminent domain power to take property to build gas pipelines across state lines. And for the Penn East Pipeline crossing Pennsylvania to New Jersey, the company sued New Jersey in the state's federal court seeking a condemnation order and just compensation determination for New Jersey-owned property. The Garden State is arguing that state sovereign immunity blocks the suit, and the Biden administration is backing Penn East in the company's quest to secure the billion-dollar pipeline. Well, that's going to do it for today's sneak peek episode. We'll be back next week with a deep dive look into that cheerleader case. Um, Until then, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. And follow us on Snapchat. Do we have that? (laughs) My name is David Schultz, and I'm here to announce On the Merits, a new podcast from Bloomberg Law that brings you everything you need to know about the biggest legal stories of the week, coupled with smart interviews and analysis on a variety of topics, such as the incoming Biden administration's judicial priorities. So I think diversity is is kind of the watchword here. We'll also keep our eyes on the Supreme Court. Now everyone is on Breyer watch. We're all watching to see when or if Justice Breyer is going to step down. You'll hear voices and perspectives from across the legal industry, including reporters and editors, attorneys, legal scholars, general counsel, But lest you think this podcast is all just news you can use, from time to time we stumble on a court docket or legal opinion that, for whatever reason, just piques our interest. And he started this opinion, 224th of it, citing the Passchendaele battle. It's one of the largest battles of World War I. 
That seems like a strange way to start off an opinion on corporate law. You can download On the Merits wherever you get your podcasts.